Thank you for listening to the North Place Podcast. We hope that after listening to this message, you will feel inspired, uplifted, and closer to Christ. To watch the video of this message, visit our website, northplacechurch.com slash watch. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to receive every episode on your phone as soon as we publish them. If you're here every week, you'll know I'm, I'm using a different mic. I normally use a headset today, but I'm a little under the weather. And I have a word burning, a passionate word burning in my heart that I don't have enough voice left to communicate the way I want to. And so I'm using this mic to try to help me a little bit. So um, that's the purpose for the handheld mic today. We are in week two of our Advent celebrations at North Place this year. And if you can't tell, Advent and Christmas is a big deal around here. Number one, because we want you to learn something. And number two, we want you to experience something. We want you to learn something about God. And there is something deeply rich and theological to learn about the character and nature of God this time of year. But we get so caught up in the surface areas of the Christmas story, hearing the same old, same old, that we miss a lot of the depth that can be learned about God. So we want you to learn something, and we don't want you to forget it. That's why there are oversized mangers and a whole lot of other things, is because we want it to be remembered. And then we want you to experience something. We want you to have an encounter with God while you're here during Advent. So learn and experience. And I pray that both of those things happen happens while you're here today. Last weekend, I took you on a journey. We started in the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of the story of God, and we tracked the pattern of God's story, revealing to you the main plot of the entire Bible. And we saw in the beginning that the motivation of the heart of God behind the whole creation story was to create these people and put them in the perfect place, Adam and Eve, placed in the Garden of Eden, so that God would be able to love us in an unrestricted strained environment. So there would be nothing that would stand between Adam and Eve and the love of God. The reason there is a creation story in the first place is because there was too much love in the heart of God to be kept to himself, so he needed somebody to share it with, so he had the perfect place to put his prized creation to love in an unfiltered, unbridled, unrestrained way. But sin ruined all that. Sin severed the relationship between God and man. It brought distance between a holy God and now sinful men. And in that moment, God could have thrown us away. He could have started all over. He could have chalked it up as a failed experiment, but he loved us. And because he loved us, he continued to look for us and chase after us. He came searching in the garden, looking for Adam and Eve with the intent of restoring a severed relationship. And although that relationship wouldn't quite be the same because of Adam and Eve's sin, God was going to do everything he could possibly do to maintain relationship with them, relationship with us as a human race. His pursuit for a relationship with us could not be stopped. And one of the ways he continued to pursue us is he told them in one season of his people's history while they were nomadically wandering in the wilderness to construct a mobile tabernacle everywhere they went and when they left, tear it down and take it with them. And his presence would come and dwell in that tabernacle. You see, a sinful man, sinful people cannot approach 
the holiness of God and live to tell about it. So God had to have a way for his glory to be with his people without harming his people. And so he would come dwell in that temple and certain people, certain priests who went through rigorous purification processes on a certain day of the year could actually walk into the holiest presence of God and live to tell the story. It was limited. It's not what God wanted, but it was the only way. So he came the only way he could in the limited way he could to continue to pursue a relationship with us. And that was the very purpose of the permanent temple that was ultimately built in Jerusalem. It was built as a place for the presence of God to dwell. But it had the same limitations as the earlier tabernacle. Only a certain few on a certain day could go into God's presence. It's not what God wanted. It's not the way it was with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's the way he wanted it. But sin had messed all of that up. But he had to find some way, even though it was limited, to dwell with his people. He could not be, did not want to be, separated from us. So fast forward to the New Testament and you find John writing in the Gospel of John. And he makes a statement that may not sound, it connects anything at all to what I just said. But it does. John 1.14, the Word is a reference to Jesus, became flesh. So the Word of God became flesh in Christ, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, John said, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So when we read this, we're reading it in English. It was originally written in Greek. So there are some things that often get lost in translation. We understand the basic meaning, but there's some small nuances that we miss. Matter of fact, when you read the phrase, made His dwelling among us, it literally translates tabernacled among us. And the reason that's important is because John would have wanted his original readers, and he wants us to know that that he chose tabernacle language and tabernacle imagery strategically, intentionally, and on purpose. Because when we read John 1.14 about the glory that came to dwell in Christ, he wanted us to know it was the same glory that walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden. It was the same glory that filled the Old Testament tabernacle. It was the same glory that filled Solomon's temple so the priest could not even stand under the weight of the glory of God's presence. He wanted us to know that the glory that we read about in the Old Testament was embodied in Christ Jesus. And John said, I have seen that glory. We have beheld that glory. I have experienced that glory. And the glory of God is now tabernacling among men in Christ Jesus. Up until the birth of Jesus, God's people being in his presence seemed limited, inconsistent, sporadic, even temporary. It seems like every time you see God's people in his presence, it was just a visitation. And while God visiting with us sounds really good, a visitation is not what the heart of God longed for. And a visitation with God is not what we need as people. We need more than a visit. We need him to come be here with us. We need him to come dwell here permanently once and for all. God's heart was never about a visitation. His heart always longed for habitation. That was his original desire, to dwell with us. And when Jesus was born, God proved the level of his pursuit 
for relationship to dwell with us. He made his most costly commitment to pursue that relationship yet when he laid aside his heavenly riches and splendor and glory to be wrapped in human flesh and placed in an animal's food trough in a barn simply that he might become one of us. Because he was finished with visitations, he was ready for a habitation. This is what we said last week. The incarnation is the bridge between visitation and habitation. Incarnation is simply God robing himself in human flesh. So when Jesus came, the Son of God robed himself in human flesh, that event was the bridge between God just coming to visit with his people and God coming to dwell with his people. There, The reason there is a Christmas is the same reason there was a Garden of Eden. God wanted to be with his people. The reason there is a Christmas is the same reason there was a, an Old Testament tabernacle. God wanted to be with his people. The reason there is a Christmas is the same reason there was a temple built in Jerusalem. God wanted to be with his people. But the moment in Eden and the tabernacle and the temple were all all temporary things. The heart of God was permanence. He wanted to dwell with his people. So he wrapped himself in flesh. He became one of us so he could once and for all dwell with us. And when you study the story from creation to Christmas and from Christmas on forward to the end of time, consummation, when you study the story of God, you you, you come to this conclusion. Christmas is the story of God's pursuit of us. The whole story of God, the whole Bible is the story of God's pursuit of us, but Christmas is the crescendo of that story of pursuit. C.S. Lewis of Chronicles of Narnia fame said this, the birth of Christ is the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing the whole story has been about. Now, here's why I'm spending so much time up to this point reviewing last week's message. Because if you don't understand what we talked about last week, you're never going to understand what I'm about to say. And it's crucial that you understand this week's conversation in order for North Place Church to become the dwelling place of God. I don't want to just talk about God having a habitation among his people and it being the larger church. I want to know what is it going to take for this church to become the dwelling place of God? What is it going to take for this to be the environment that God dwells in? And in order for that to happen, we have to understand this. And to understand this, we got to know where we started last week. So if the heart of God is for habitation, not visitation, and that's the very reason there is a Christmas in the first place, then let's talk about, think about, study that habitation concept for a moment. The dictionary defines habitation as this, the state or process of living in a particular place. Some synonyms of habitation, occupancy, residence, living in, dwelling, or inhabit. So whatever your habitat is, that's your address. That's where you live. That's where you dwell. So for something to take up habitation in a place, for something to inhabit a certain place, the habitat or the environment has to be conducive to that species. So certain plants and animals and even human beings can only thrive and live in or inhabit certain kinds of habitats. So that has me questioning, what is the habitat of God? What is the habitat of God's dwelling presence? Where is God chosen to make his habitation, his presence dwell? I don't want us to commit the rest of our time together to answering those questions. Where has God chosen to make his habitation? What is his habitat, his residence, his address? Where has he chosen to dwell? And in order to answer that question, we really need to start 
in Paul's conversation with the church at Ephesus. Paul is describing, in Ephesus chapter 2, he's describing what the church really is, the nature of the church, and he describes it this way in Ephesians 2, 18, for, though, for through him, he's talking about Christ, for through Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, before I read on, let me just say this. Paul says, you used to be an exile, a stranger and a foreigner to God. You didn't have access into his presence. Your sin separated you from him and you couldn't go in. You were also not only exiled from God, you were exiled from the family of faith. But because you've surrendered your life to Jesus, he's become your Lord. You're lost in his righteousness, and now God doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Because of that, you now have access to the presence of the Father. And because of that, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're no longer an outcast. You've been brought in. You're no longer an exile. You've been brought home. You're a fellow citizen with the saints, and you share the same reward as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are a child of God. That's what Paul is saying. This is the church. And then verse 20, built, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, Paul is not talking about a building when he talks about a structure and a temple. He's talking about the family of God being knit together. When people from various ethnicities and languages and tribes and nations come together in Christ, they become one family and they are built together as a structure as a temple, not, not, a, not a building, but a place. Why? What's important about the place? 22, verse 22. Because in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when people that have been redeemed by the love and grace of God that are Christ followers gather together in any place, that gathering of Christ followers is the dwelling place of the presence of God. It has nothing to do with the building. This building is brick and mortar. It's all it is. But when you come into this room and start lifting up the name of Jesus, it becomes the dwelling place of the glory and the presence of God. We could take all of us, go out in a field, and start exalting the name of Jesus, and that would then be the glory, dwelling place of the glory of God. In the Bible study at the coffee shop, in the living room at your house, when the people of God get together, declare his glory, his holiness, and his name, he comes and dwells in that place. Verse 22, and the King James says this, in whom you also are built together for a habitation. There's that word, a dwelling place, a habitation of God. So the church, not the building, but the people, when we come together to corporately, collectively worship God, we become, according to Paul, a dwelling place or habitation for God by his spirit. Now, I need you to get this. I need you to stop for a moment and think deeply about what we're saying. I need you to see what the Bible says about the power of our corporate worship. We need to understand the heart of God to come and be in the collective praises of his people. There is potential in it that we don't recognize. There is power in it that we take for granted because according to what we just read, the place that God has chosen to dwell, the place that God has chosen to make his unique habitation is the collective worship of his people. So that means when we come together each weekend to sing, to lift up our hands, to exalt the name of Jesus, to declare his glory, we are making this room the habitat of God. This is the environment that God has chosen to make his dwelling. 
Now that reality ought to be a game changer for us. It should change everything about the way we approach weekend worship experience at church. First of all, it should change our level of expectation. Because if I really believe what the Bible said about corporate worship, I would be like David when he said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Why was David so ready to get to church? Because he knew there was something supernatural about corporate worship with God's people that cannot be replicated any other way in any other place. He knew that God had chosen to make the praises of his people the place that he will dwell. And when mortal men come into the presence of an infinite God, it is impossible for those people to stay the same. The psalmist says, in his presence is fullness of joy. God's presence is the place where salvation, healing, deliverance, restoration happens. It's the place where marriages are restored, addiction is broken, sickness is healed, sin is forgiven. And if I really believed what the Bible said about corporate worship, I would run to this place every weekend with my heart ready to meet with God because I understood the supernatural potential that is in this place when people exalt Jesus together. Now, if we really believe what the Bible said about corporate worship, it wouldn't just change our level of expectation, it would change our level of preparation. Because if I believe what the Bible says about corporate worship, that that's going to be the place that the holiness of God's going to dwell, I don't just come lackadaisically walking in here like I would some pop concert because I'm very aware that I am walking into the environment that God has promised to fill with his presence, the collective worship of his people. So I start preparing to get into that environment before I ever show up. You see, some people don't value or appreciate the potential and the power of corporate worship. A lot of people just think because they didn't grow up this way or they've never been taught or for whatever reason, they think the 20 minutes that we come in here and worship together and sing together before the preaching starts is just filler space. They think we just, the preachers just put that little singing part on the order of service to give folks time to gather in late to get here for the real part, the preaching part. I've even had people tell me, I mean, it's not been that long ago. I've had people come to me and say, you know what? I don't really care about all the music part. I don't care about all that singing stuff. I just come for the preaching of the word. And a lot of times when they tell me that, there is this note of arrogance in their voice as if that singing and and worship part is for the emotional people that are less mature than I am. I'm more intellectual. I'm more spiritually mature. And I'm just coming in to hear the word. So I don't care anything about those 20 minutes or 25 minutes before the preaching. I just come for the preaching. And if that's your mentality, and if you've said that to me, I'm going to tell you, you haven't read your Bible, or you don't understand the Bible, and you definitely don't understand the heart of God. Listen to the psalmist as he prays in Psalm 22, verse 3. Yet you are holy, he says, enthroned on the praises or dwell in the praises of Israel. You are enthroned on the praises of your people. It's not the praises of the people that make God holy. He's already holy. It's the praises of his people that become the dwelling place of his holiness. He inhabits the praises of his people. Our collective praise as a church becomes the seat of his glory. Now I want you to focus in on that phrase, the seat of his glory, and I want to show you an image. I want to show you the seat of his glory. There's an image that's going to come up. It's an image of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was synonymous in the Old Testament with the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was in the temple. It was in the the tabernacle, and it is where the glory dwelt. 
where the Ark of the Covenant was. Matter of fact, even when they moved the covenant to different places, the Ark, they had to be very special, very careful that they didn't do something wrong with it. Matter of fact, Uzzah mishandled the Ark, and in, in essence, it mishandled the presence and the glory of God, and he died in the process. When sinful men come in contact with the Holy God, you don't do it right, you don't, you don't live to tell about it, and Uzzah didn't. And so this, this Ark is synonymous with the glory of God. Now, you have to understand, when the Ark was in play, and the people of God, they were not a democracy, they didn't have a constitution, they didn't have a governor or a president, they were not a kingship, so there was no earthly king sitting on the throne. In the early days, it was a theocracy. God governed his people, and he would come dwell, take up his dwelling in the holiest place, and the ark was there, and God would come and literally his glory would dwell in between those two angels. Those two angels that are facing each other at the top are known as cherubims, and they, that, that is the mercy seat, okay? Literally, it is the seat of God's glory. It is his throne. That's where his throne was. It was the seat of his glory, the seat of his grace, and the seat of his forgiveness. This is where the presence of God dwelt. Remember what the psalmist says, you are enthroned, you take up your throne on the praises of your people. So God's presence dwelt in the middle of the praises of his people. Now I want you to pay close attention to the angels on the top of the ark. Why are they facing each other? What's the point of them being turned toward each other? Because That is the place that God has chosen to dwell. He has chosen to dwell in the collective conversation of his people as they glorify his name. He dwells in and in between the worship of his people, in between the worship of his people. He comes to dwell. What did Jesus say in Matthew 18? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So where two or three are gathered in his name to worship him, to exalt him, to declare his holiness, he comes and lives in the middle of that praise, in between that praise, among that praise. Those angels on the top of the ark of the covenant signify the place where God dwelt in the past, but they symbolize the place that he has chosen to always dwell in between and among the praises of his people. Do you remember in Isaiah 6 when the prophet Isaiah has this encounter with God and he sees the Lord high and lifted up on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. Isaiah sees it, he's experiencing it and as Isaiah describes the scene, he sees angels gathered around the throne of God and notice what they are doing. Here's how Isaiah describes it. Isaiah 6, 3. They were calling out to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So there are angels on this side saying holy, holy, holy. There are angels on this side saying holy, holy, holy. And the throne or the dwelling place of God when his train filled the temple was in between the collective conversation of praise that glorified his name. Just like on the top of the seat of mercy on the Ark of the Covenant. There is something that happens when God's people begin to lift him up. Holy, holy, holy. And this one says worthy, worthy, worthy. Something happens in the environment and that creates the habitation of God. The glory of God dwells in the collective conversation of praise. The midst of our worship is his dwelling place. You see the same in the book of Revelation. When John the Revelator at the end of the book gets this glimpse into heaven at the end of the Bible, he sees the throne room of God and there are angels worshiping. Notice what they're doing. Day after day, night after night, they keep on saying, 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. God's dwelling, that's his throne, that's in heaven. So from from the beginning to the middle in Isaiah to the end of the book, God dwells where his name is exalted in the collective conversation and worship of his people. So I would challenge you, don't ever walk into this place or any worship environment for that matter and underestimate the power of what God might do when his people come together to lift up his name. If you're gathering with 10 buddies at the coffee shop, don't underestimate what God might do. If you're gathering with some friends at the break room that love and follow Jesus and are going to clear his name in the locker room on the football field behind a shade tree, it doesn't matter where you are in a beautiful church on a Sunday morning if we will come into this room and declare holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. Exalt the name of Jesus. He will dwell among the praises of his people. You remember David? You remember that time David was discouraged and depressed? Literally, he was, he had come to a a dark place in his life and even asked this question, why are you downcast, O my soul? That was in Psalm 42. And David was in a low place in his life. Do you know what pulled David out of the low place in his life? He remembered something. And the remembrance of that moment is what jolted him from his depression, despair, and darkness. Here's what Psalm 42 says. My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy, giving thanks amid the sound of great celebration. So David is describing this moment that he is fondly remembering where God marked his life in the collective worship of God's people. He said throngs, crowds were singing celebration to God. God did something in me. And as David remembered that experience with God, he asked this question in verse 5. So why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. And so that remembrance of that encounter with God in the atmosphere of corporate worship and how God met him in that place pulled David out of his discouragement and despair. David said, I missed the moment. I got to go back there. And if I can just get into that place, why should I be discouraged? I'm going to put my hope in God and praise the God of my salvation. Now, there's this unique situation that happens in Acts 16. It's the story of Paul and Silas who were thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. But the officials that threw them in prison did not know what I'm telling you today. And so they put Paul and Silas in the same prison cell, and that was a mistake. Because if they would have put Paul in one prison cell and Silas on the other end of the prison in another prison cell, there wouldn't have been the opportunity for a collective conversation of worship that was going to exalt the name of Jesus. But they made a mistake and they took two Christ followers and put them in the same cell and together like the cherubims on the top of the ark, they began to sing and praise, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. And here's what happened. Acts 16, 25, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to the foundations and the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off and I believe today when we collectively come together to signify the holiness of God declare the glory of his name and surrender our hearts holy holy worthy worthy when the people of God unify their hearts around Jesus chains still fall off and prison doors still open in the power and the presence of God. Our praise is the seat of his 
glory. If you really knew and believed what could happen if we took corporate worship seriously, we would care less about the style of music or what era it came from or who was singing it as long as we were collectively declaring holy, 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 worthy. It didn't matter if it's an out-of-tune banjo and two tin cans or an electric guitar, a song from the 1700s or one that was written yesterday by somebody famous. If it centralizes Jesus Christ and it declares his holiness and his people get together in the same place and unify their hearts together, that place becomes the dwelling place of God. Now before I finish, let me just take you back to what I said in the beginning. Christmas is the story of God's pursuit of us. God's pursuit of us. But when you hear me talk about pursuing anything, it's usually I'm spurring you on to pursue God. You've heard me say things like, Come on, North Place, let's go after God today. Come on, North Place, let's chase after Him. Let's pursue Him. You've even heard me make this statement. The proof of desire is in pursuit. You've heard me make that statement. The proof of desire is in pursuit because what you really long for, you wind up going after. If you want it bad enough, you're going to go get it. That's true in career, education. Uh, that's in a romantic relationship. That's in your relationship with God. You can say you want it, but you don't really want it if there is no activity to prove your desire. The proof of desire is in pursuit. You want God? Go after him. Pursue him. Seek him. But the flip side of that is if the proof of desire is in pursuit, then when you, um, when you look at the pattern of God's story, he has proved his desire over and over again to be with you. Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, Christmas in a manger, the cross, ultimately consummation when we're going to be with him forever. He continues to prove his desire by the passion of his pursuit. So the question is, okay, what does the Bible teach? Are we supposed to be pursuing God? Or is God supposed to be pursuing us? Well, there's really scriptures that teach both. Because when you read this psalm in Psalm 27, 4, you hear David say this, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek or I will pursue after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. David said, I seek the presence of God. But David wasn't in pursuit of God because he was trying to convince some reluctant God to come hang out with him. Our corporate worship isn't some desperate attempt to lobby a distant God in order to get his attention. Because God is more passionate about being with us than we are about being with him. Matter of fact, he's the one that's been chasing after us and pursuing after us from the very beginning. So our worship really doesn't change God at all. Our worship is changing us. He's been the one in pursuit of us all the time. So when we collectively come together to worship, what we're doing is preparing a place. The same way Joseph and Mary were preparing a place so that the Son of God would have a place to lay his head and God would have a place to dwell. When we come in this room and begin to glorify the name of Jesus, we're preparing our hearts and we're preparing this environment to become the habitat, the glory of God can dwell in. Worship gets us ready because he's the one been chasing us. So my pursuit of him is simply the preparation of my own heart and the preparation of my own environment. You remember that conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well? It's that woman who came to him and they were talking about worship. And she didn't really know if he was all that, if he really was who he said he was. And So he looked at her and said, well, go tell everybody. 
go tell the man you're living with who's not your husband because I know you had five husbands and the guy you're living with isn't him. And she's like, oh, you may be who, you know, you know all that about me. You may be him. In that conversation with her, Jesus said this in John 4, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Listen to this. For the Father is seeking, pursuing such people to worship him. So God is chasing, hunting, looking for people that create a place for his glory to dwell. Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's hunting for a place, looking desperately for a place for his glory to have a seat, a place to dwell. I was thinking about this this week. What image do I know that I understand that kind of symbolizes this? And I thought about birds of prey. Maybe you haven't seen it. Hopefully you have. Where you've been going down the road or you've seen it on a National Geographic channel where there's a hawk or a a raptor or some falcon. And that, that bird is, they normally just soar. But when they start hunting and they got their eye on something, they will just flap and hover above the ground. They just kind of hover in that one place, flapping their wings really fast while they're looking. And then when they get their eye and they get a place, they go after it and they dive. They go after what they're hunting. That's the image I had in my mind of what God is doing over the church this morning, over, over Dallas-Fort Worth this morning. No, no, don't get me wrong. I believe in the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere all the time. But there is a difference in the omnipresence of God in the incarnational presence of God. In the Old Testament, God was everywhere all the time. He was omnipresent. But the glory of God would come in a very unique and a tangible way into that temple. And that glory came and dwelt in Jesus. And now the scripture says that the glory that dwelt in Christ now dwells in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That same glory. So when I lift him up and I begin to worship him, I'm preparing a place because he's looking, not just for his omnipresence, he's looking for a place for his incarnational presence, the felt, tangible presence of God to dwell. And when I start worshiping in my life, or the church starts becoming a place of worship that declares his holiness, and we start preparing a place. I believe he's hovering, he's looking, and not every church that's gathering together in the world today, in Dallas today, not every church is preparing a place for the glory to dwell. Not every church is. So he's looking for a place. that He's just he's kind of hovering and looking. And when he finds that place, he comes. When he finds that person, he comes. When he finds that home, he comes. And his glory dwells where it is welcomed. Prepare room. Prepare hearts. In the collective conversation, he comes. Holy, holy, holy. He becomes Emmanuel. God with us. I want to challenge you. I wrapped it up early today because I want us to do something. Okay, so the end of my message is an illustration of what will happen, what can happen when God's people take corporate worship seriously. And that's what we're going to do. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's an invitation. And I'm giving you that invitation right now today. We're coming back, and we're going to do it with this understanding of the heart of God, with this understanding of the Word of God. We're not going to nonchalantly do it today. We're going to, we're going to pursue Him because He's chasing after us, and we're going to make room for Him to come into this room. And when He comes in like He can and like He often does, we can't stay the same. 
it changes us. When you read the word magnify, there are two, word, two ways to magnify. You can magnify something microscopically. You take something small, make it big. Or you, take, you, you magnify something telescopically. You reach out there like the Hubble telescope and get something three times the size of the earth. And you draw it near through telescopic magnification in order to study it. That's what worship is. It's taking and reaching out in our worship and, and lifting up and exalting this massive, uh, incomprehensible God... And we're drawing him near in our worship so he is personal and close. So he can be felt and experienced and known. And then our worship becomes the seat of his glory so that people who don't know him can begin to know and understand. They feel and experience. It's not just intellectual. It's genuinely, I feel God here today. That's what happens when God's people worship. So I want you to help me. Let's do it different this time. Not that there was anything wrong with last time. I just don't think we get it. What can happen? Okay. Now, some of you didn't grow up in an environment like North Place. You grew up in a, in a, in a more liturgical environment, or you didn't go to church at all, or your church was very reserved. There wasn't a lot of emphasis on the experience of the worship moment. And if, if that's uncomfortable with you, then I'm just telling you, be you. I don't ever want you to do anything or be anything here that is not you or that you're not comfortable with. But there are some of you that know exactly what I'm talking about. And you're, you, you just kind of become lazy in the way you go after God. There are two parts of a shepherd's staff. One is a hook that you reach out and grab somebody that's straying off and you pull them back in. The other end is a goad and you poke something standing still when it ought to be moving. And today, I'm, I'm goading. Those of you that know better, I'm goading. Because there is potential in this moment. I don't ever want you to walk into this church the same again. I don't ever want you to go into any worship service again and underestimate the power of what God will do when His people worship Him. Come on, stand with me. This is not the end. This is. I'll come back and close you. Come on, let's lift His name up just for a few moments like we really believe the heart of God, what the Bible says. Let's exalt His name together. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at North Place and on Facebook at North Place Church. To watch the video of this message, go to northplacechurch.com slash watch.